You might know what your moral convictions are, but you might not necessarily know the deep roots that you have placed within those convictions as to why you have a reaction that you do. You might even surprise yourself, like, why am I so angry? Why am I so sad? Why am I so deeply motivated to study more on this specific topic? Why am I so agitated or filled with rage? You might not even know the reasons why you have such a reaction to different moral topics. It has everything to do with your worldview. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what Scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. And while you're looking for that, I want to ask you a question. What are you naturally drawn to do whenever it comes to what you might just call disputable matters? So a situation in which it's not entirely clear what you should do. Well, if you're anything like me, you'll probably turn to yourself as the ultimate authority of your own life. Like, I don't know about you, but I agree with myself a lot. Right? If Julie was here, she'd say the same thing. She'd be like, yep, Justin agrees with himself a lot. He, he thinks he's right. And maybe you suffer from the same condition that I do, a little bit called narcissism, that you think you're right. And so because of that, here's the challenge. When it comes to these disputable matters, when it comes to these questions, we might hesitate to come to Jesus with those questions because what he says might impinge upon our personal rights, and freedoms. He might say something we don't like. Many of you know that I served in the U.S. for 14 years, and while I was there, I would say the most commonly used phrase, whenever it came to the religious rights movement, whenever it came to um, the sexual rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, uh, the arguments uh, for uh, pro-life or um, uh, being more pro-choice, came from Supreme Court Justice Kennedy when he said this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, as, as we think about that, as we, as we look at this phrase, which has been used so many times with respect to all of those debates, part of me wants to accept that. Part of me wants to like this. But at exactly the same time, I know that as a Christian, I have to reject that claim. And here's why. Because Scripture says something different. Scripture says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So I know that my heart is treacherous. Or Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer five, it says this. I have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate my neighbor. That's what I know about my own heart. And so then we also read in Psalm 53, there is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven at all of humankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so because of that, 
let me ask you a really, really important question that goes like this. If the basis for how we build our ethics in the United States, in Canada, especially here in the West, if, if the basis for how we build our ethics is that each individual reserves the right to define their own concept of existence and of meaning, then who's to say that anyone can or can't do anything at all? I mean, who am I to tell you what you can't do? And likewise, who are you to tell me what I can or can't do as, as long as I don't break someone else's arm or I don't break your arm, who are you to tell me what I can do? or what I can't do. And that's what we're struggling with as a culture as we're seeking to understand what is good, what is right, and what is true. But here's the challenge. All of us use different worldviews to determine what is true, what is right, and what is good. And so that's what we're talking about today. We're, we're taking the whole time this morning to talk about worldviews because I think it's going to pay dividends when we dive into the deep end next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? On Easter Sunday, why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus important? And then we're diving into the deep end the week after that, and we're going to get into a whole slew of topics that are potentially divisive and challenging. But before we do that, we're taking last week and this week, hopefully, to build a solid foundation for us to understand what we are saying and what we are not saying. And today we're looking at worldviews. And, and I want to convince you that as Christians, we're not as deeply concerned about what you might just call moral issues we are far more concerned about walking in the ways of Jesus because we believe, as Christians, when we walk with Jesus, he brings light and life to all who listen. And so it's not as much, you know, if you walk in the ways of Jesus, if you're moral, if you're upright, then Jesus will accept you. No, it's if you love Jesus with your whole heart, would you not automatically be drawn to walk in his ways? Do you see, see how different those things are? One is moralism. The other one is Christianity. And what we want is to be people of the king, people who walk with Jesus on our discipleship journey. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point that I put in your note sheet. Where you end up has a lot to do with where you begin. Where you end up has a lot to do with where you begin. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? So let me tell you something that you do know. Things are changing in uh, the cultural psyche in Canada really, really fast across pretty much the entire spectrum, right? You think about technology. You think about social intelligence. Have any of you come across ChatGPT? It is amazing what, social, what uh, the intelligence of uh, computers can do today. It is changing really, really fast, but not just in terms of technology, but also in terms of ethics and morality and our sexuality. But what I also want to convince you of is things are not changing at the same rate across the board. Let me give you a couple examples of this. The first one is Canadians' approval of adultery, um, having sexual relationships with people outside of your marriage. Today, um, if you ask the average Canadian, 90% would say that's wrong. And that hasn't changed over the course of the last 30, 40 years. It's roughly been 90% throughout that entire time. Compare that to the next one, polygamy, the belief that you can have more than one spouse. In 2006, it was 5%, 1 in 20. Fast forward to 2022, last year, 19%, 1 in 5. 
That is a very, very, very fast change. And I think by the end of our time today, I, th I think you'll be convinced why we're heading in this direction. Because if love is love and I get to define what is true for myself, who am I to say what two or three or four other consenting adults can do on their own time? Who am I to say what is right or wrong for them? And this is a very powerful idea in our culture today. It's a very fast change. On the topic of homosexual marriage, in 1999, I was 11 years old, by the way. In 1999, it was a third of Canadians were supportive of same-sex marriage. By 2011, it was 50%. And last year, by 2022, it was 72%. And I think if you took that survey again today, it would be more than three-fourths of Canadians. That's a very fast change, a very fast change. And this rapid shift can be defined as the great reversal. Many of you feel this, but perhaps you haven't been able to kind of put words on it or to describe why it's happening. And so here, here's what I want to show you. In any situation in which there is a great reversal, it goes a little bit like this. Historically, there has been an ethic or uh, an action that has been condemned, and then it becomes something that goes from condemned to tolerated. And then over a short period of time, it goes from tolerated to celebrated. But at exactly the same time, the ethic that used to be used to condemn something, which was a celebrated ethic, that becomes something that becomes tolerated. And then eventually it becomes something that is condemned. It's called the great reversal and it happens all the time. And I'm not making any sort of moral judgment on this. Oftentimes it's a good thing. You, you think about uh, Jim Crow laws in the United States. It used to be something that was celebrated. And very, very quickly in the United States, it went from celebrated to condemned. And I think that's something we'd, we'd all agree with, right? So oftentimes these rapid cultural shifts, they work themselves out like this. And it happens all the time in the United States, in Canada, and throughout the world. And it has special relevance for us today, friends, because even in this room, I ended this way last week, we have so many different people in this congregation, such a, div a diverse group of people. We have people who have same-sex attraction or who have family members with same-sex attraction. We have people who are affirming, people who hold the traditional or historical view. We have single people, married people, divorced people, remarried people, uh, people with addictions to pornography, people who are eager for me to take nine weeks to talk about this and can't wait to jump in, others who would much rather get a root canal than for me to talk about this for nine weeks, but all of us people, a diverse group of people. And I want to convince you, like I did last week and again this week, that we got to get our posture right with respect to this topic. We have to be people of the gospel, filled with grace and filled with truth as we enter into the space. And the reason why this is so important for you, even if you feel like you don't struggle with any of the topics we're gonna be talking about over the next two months, it does apply to you because it applies to people who are a part of your faith family. And that's why we have to do this really, really love, uh, really, really well. And so here's why. The way that we respond reflects the heart 
of God. I wanna convince you of that. The way that we enter into the space reflects the heart of God. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, gender dysphoria is a real thing. That is a situation in which there is a person who is biologically, anatomically male, has XY chromosomes, but he feels like he is a man trapped, or a, a woman trapped in a man's body. It's a real thing, and it's not something that he has invited. He's not sexually curious. It's not as though he just wants to try on different clothes. He feels trapped. It's an unwelcomed event in, in the vast majority of cases, and he struggles with this. And I want to convince you that the way that we respond, the way that we enter into the situation, needs to reflect the character, the love, the heart, and the instruction of God. Likewise, someone who has same-sex attraction, it is a real thing. And again, in the vast majority of cases, it is an unwelcomed event where they struggle alone for years, perhaps even decades before they come out and share with someone else, I, I struggle with this. And it's, it's a real situation that cannot change in the same way that I couldn't convince someone here who's heterosexual for you to be convinced that you are attracted to someone of the same sex today. And the way that we respond needs to reflect the character, the love, the instruction, and the heart of God. We have to get this right. We need to be people of the gospel. So look again at that first fill in the blank I gave you. Where you end up has a lot to do with where you begin. And for that reason, I want to have a conversation about worldviews because oftentimes, I think worldviews are kind of like bad breath, you're often the last to know. You might know what your moral convictions are, but you might not necessarily know the deep roots that you have placed within those convictions as to why you have a reaction that you do. You might even surprise yourself, like, why am I so angry? Why am I so sad? Why am I so deeply motivated to study more on this specific topic? Why am I so agitated or filled with rage? You might not even know the reasons why you have such a reaction to different moral topics. It has everything to do with your worldview. So two questions that we need to ask of ourselves. Number one, how do we as Christians determine what is true? That's the most important question that a Christian can ever ask. And then number two, less important but still vital, what are the leading ideas that influence our cultural thinking today? How can two people, perhaps even from the same house, you got one person who says, how can you believe that's true? You're so wrong. And then the person on the other side says, how can you believe that? You're wrong for thinking it's wrong. Like, how can you have two people on totally opposite ends of the spectrum on some moral issue, even if they're from the same house? What accounts for that? Your worldview. Your worldview. And so it's important for us to know what our worldview is. So if you're in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Here's what it says. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, there's two things I want you to take note of really, really quickly here. The first thing we have to see is, is uh, that Paul is talking to Christians who have received Christ as their Lord. They are Christians. They're Christians. 
And the second thing we have to see is that they are committed to living their lives, being rooted and built up in the faith. So these are Christians who are a part of a local church who are convinced that the best way to live your life is in in, um, accordance with Jesus' law. This is further articulated with the beginning of the book when it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, he's talking to Christians. He's saying, here's the instruction manual for your life. I can get straight to the moral issues because I know that we share the same worldview. I know that we have the same authority structure. I know that we all believe that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And because of that, let's get into the weeds. But we have to start with this. I want you to be convinced that it makes no sense for us as Christians to have this idea that non-Christians should behave like Christians. Like, how does it make any sense for us to say, like, you know what, you're not acting a whole lot like Jesus, even though you don't know Jesus, which makes me act less like Jesus. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so always, 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 when we're having these conversations, we have to ask ourselves, am I talking with a Christian or am I talking with a non-Christian? And if I'm talking with someone who doesn't know Jesus, I want to introduce them to Jesus. And if I'm talking with another Christian, I'm going to say, let's open up God's word together and seek to understand what it means because we know that it brings life. But those are very different conversations. So Paul, after identifying that he's talking exclusively to Christians, he says this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive, take note of that, through hollow and deceptive philosophies, take note of that, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So again, two things you got to see here. He's talking about people being caught up in something, captivated in something. This is not willful ignorance or willful disobedience. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, by a show of hands, have ever made a mistake for the right reasons? You you were motivated to do the right thing, but you made a mistake. How many of you? My goodness, that's a lot of people, right? We can get caught up in things, oftentimes, for the right reasons. We're motivated to do the right thing. That's what he's talking about. You've been captivated by something. And then notice he's talking about philosophies and not people. I've said this to you for four years, and I'm going to keep saying it. It's probably going to be on my tombstone one day. Um, I put it this way in your note sheet. People are not your enemy. They may be captive to the enemy. They might be caught up in the enemy's schemes, but they are not your enemy. That is such an important distinction for us to make as we talk about potentially divisive topics, that we are people of the kingdom of God, and so we never treat another human being as an enemy. We believe that the only way for someone to truly be transformed is if Jesus gets a hold of their heart and takes the heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh, not simply observance of his righteous rules, which is morality and moralism and ultimately it leads to death that's what the pharisees did and they didn't even recognize jesus 
for who he truly was. And so we wanna be people of the gospel. And ultimately it ends this way. The apostle Paul uh, in Colossians chapter two, verse 12, he says this, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this. We're gonna be people of the kingdom of God who are clothed with compassion. So let me ask you a question that hits a little bit closer to home. Is it possible that Christians have gotten caught up in some of the enemy's schemes? Have we been captivated when it comes to other sexual topics? And I'm sure you already know the answer to that question is yes. There's a lot of different things I could share with you. I decided just to show two of them. Here's at least two ways that Christians have gotten caught up in this. Number one, the use of pornography. Over 65% of Christian men watch pornography at least once a month. And this statistic is the latest that I could find, and it's five years old. And it's by their own admission. That is to say that this number is only higher than this. It's only higher. And then cohabitation. 49% of teens with religious backgrounds support living together before marriage. And again, the Bible has a lot to say about this. So when it comes to hollow and deceptive philosophies, when it comes to getting caught up in the enemy's schemes, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about people out there? No, he's, he's talking about us, us as Christians, what we're struggling with, what we're banging our heads on. So if you want to identify an enemy and it's not Satan, I'll, I'll give you an enemy that you should be fighting against, your own sin nature your own heart. The apostle Paul tells you to die to the old self, to kill the old self, to root it out, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image and the likeness of Jesus. So if you're looking for an enemy, identify your own sinful heart. Go after that, but do not put it at the feet of other people who do not yet know the name of Jesus. They need our compassion and our love. So when we're talking about worldview, I, I think here's a way that you can think about it. The first is, when we think of worldviews, it is the way that we view the world. You're welcome. I'm here all week. So it's the lens through which we interpret reality, right? And so that, here's the second one. The lens through which we interpret reality and by which we reason. Just last night, I was watching a video of children who were born legally blind. And because of new technology, the, the, there's these new glasses that they can put on. And when they put them on, they can finally see. And, you know, it's one of those I'm not crying, you're crying videos. And the children, they just have big smiles on their face when they see their biological parents for the very first time. Or there's other videos in which there are people who um, are colorblind. So they see, but they see everything in black and white. And they put the lenses on and finally bursting forth with color, communicating to their brain green and red and yellow and violet, all these beautiful colors coming to life. And that's what your worldview does. It is the lens through which we interpret reality and by which we give reason. And here's the third one. It is a set of assumptions that we hold about what is true. And like I've shared with you already, our worldview is usually adopted 
which means oftentimes we don't even know that we hold the worldview that we have. And I don't want that to be the case for you. I want you to have taken the time to really root out why do I think the way that I do about this topic or this topic or this topic? What is the worldview through which I see the world and give reason? So your worldview can be discovered by asking yourself a series of very basic questions. Three questions are really, really important. Number one, where did I come from? That's the creation question. Number two, what went wrong with the world? That's the fall question. And number three, how do we fix it? How do we make it right? That's the restoration question. And the word of God follows that framework. Creation, fall, redemption, and then the consummation of all things when Jesus returns in glory. And where do we spend all of our time today? What are all the arguments about on social media and on the news and with political pundits? It's right here. How do we fix the world? How do we make it right? How do we fix it? And we have disagreements on how we can go about trying to fix the world. And we scream and we yell at each other. Man, we can throw out a lot of topics. What about COVID? What about vaccines? What about gun rights? What about freedoms and liberties in terms of our own autonomy or our sexual freedoms? Wow, we could yell at each other for a long, long time. But we're all trying to do this. We're all trying to figure out how can we rearrange the world to make it better. We just have different ideas on how to do that. But as Christians, we look at these questions and we reframe it around the word of scripture. So two questions that ultimately lead to your um, ultimate worldview. The first one is the question of authority. Who or what has the right to tell me what to do? And who or what knows what is best for me? What is the ultimate authority through which I give reason? And I say, you know what? This authority says this, therefore I will do this. This is the most important thing. And that leads to the second question, which is equally important, the question of trustworthiness. Does that authority love me and want what is best for me? And in that way, there might be an instance in which you would say, you know what? I disagree with this authority. I disagree with the decisions that this authority has made, but I trust him. I love him. I know he loves me. You know, it's like a parent-child relationship. We might scream at our parents. We might yell at our parents. We might try to push against our parents. But if we know they, we, that they love us and we love them, that we're ultimately gonna put our trust in them even when we disagree. These questions are critically important in seeking to understand our worldview. So here's a way that I've heard it been said, and I really like this. Different worldviews lead to different authorities, which result in different assumptions, and different answers to questions on different moral issues that different people embrace. Now here's the question that I wanna ask you. Where do we spend all of our time? Where do we live? Right here. That's where we spend all of our time. We're always talking about different answers to questions on different moral issues that different people embrace. But here's what I want you to see. With respect to this, here's what I would just call the heart zone. When you talk about worldviews, you're sitting at a coffee shop, you're saying like, what's your ultimate authority? You know, I believe Jesus is the Lord of life. He came from heaven to earth. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He went to the cross, scorning its shame. We've all been set free because of the work of Jesus. My worldview is Jesus. 
And the other person says, well, I disagree with that. Oh, tell me your worldview. Well, I'm a Marxist or, you know, I'm, I'm Darwinian, you know, I'm a nihilist or uh, I, I believe in Buddha. But we're having conversations about worldviews. We're leaning in. We're asking questions. So that in hopes that as we pray, discern, seek, that Jesus would do a work in their life. But what's this section? This is what I would just call the fist section or the claws or the fangs. This is where we fight about moral issues and we talk past each other and we do it all the time. We do it all the time. What's your opinion? What's your stance? Where do you lean on this issue? Can I be your friend? First, I need to know where you stand on all these moral issues. We create barriers and walls and we fight and we pontificate. And if we're not careful, then we begin to condemn and to condescend people who are made in the image and the likeness of God, who are worthy of our dignity. And so we have to resist this and we have to live here and allow that to impact what we do here. The world wants answers to questions because very clearly, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Can I get an amen on that? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Pastor Adam already prayed for the terrible tragedy that occurred in Nashville last week. Many of you perhaps know the story. Six people were killed, three of which were children, and one was a nine-year-old girl by the name of Hallie, and her dad was the pastor of the local church. And that pastor was the superintendent of the school. And as of today, three weeks ago, he shared this with his congregation. I don't have it up on the screen, but I want to read it to you. I want you to hear what he said to his congregation just three weeks ago. He said, Jesus' resurrection is the moment death dies. Can you imagine how that's hitting him today? He shared this in anticipation for Palm Sunday, which is today. Jesus hearing the, the cries of the people, Hosanna, 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 which means save us. Jesus' resurrection, it's the moment death dies. It's the moment death is condemned, chained, and conquered. The good news for us this morning is that moment, that resurrection, that power, that pattern that awaits the church. All those who believe in Jesus, to whom John says, he gave the right to become children of God. And so he says, so go there with me, church. One day, Jesus will return in power to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, he will call to you by name as your good shepherd, as he has promised. So friends, I I've been struggling with how to think about the Nashville shooting. As many of you perhaps know, the shooter identified as trans, and the victims were Christians in a Christian school. And we begin to ask ourselves questions, how do we think about this? And once again, those on the right and those on the left are using it as an opportunity to argue about this. And those on the left are saying she, she didn't have enough acceptance 
too much harsh condemnation against the religious right. And it broke her. And then she did a terrible thing. And those on the religious right are saying it's because of the liberal ideology. It's because they poisoned her mind. And this should be considered a hate crime against Christians in America. And then you also have the gun rights debate that's being popped up again. And what are they saying? On the one side, they're saying, get rid of all the guns. We've got to get rid of the guns. And that's the only way that we can solve the world's problems. And on the other side, they're saying, what an idiotic idea. We've got to get more guns. Give it to the teachers. More security. More guns. That way we'll save the world. That way we'll rearrange the world. And they're all doing this. They're living in this world. And we're just talking past each other. And what's so heartbreaking about it, friends, is I'm sure that if you uh, sat all those people down together, their desire would be to make the world a better place. To try to make it better. To rearrange the world so that it could become something good. Everyone is asking the question, how do we make the world a better place? And as Christians, we believe we have the answer. But it has to be tied to our posture. It has to be genuinely good news to those who listen. And so I think this is a really, really important element of the conversation that we need to keep in mind is we need to have more heart conversations than fist conversations. So when you're thinking about your ultimate authority, I, I think here's a way of thinking about it. What happens when you and God disagree? That's the ultimate question that I want to lay at your feet. Not what happens when you agree. What happens when you disagree with God? I shared with you a couple weeks ago that I think the average atheist probably agrees with scripture 85, maybe 90% of the time. So the question isn't what happens when you and God agree or do you agree most of the time? It's what happens when you disagree. And if you treat the word of God the same way that I treat Google Maps, treating it as authoritative 80, maybe 98% of the time, but reserving the right to zig when it says zag because you think the latest software patch or update hasn't developed yet in God, I mean Google's eyes, then you're the ultimate authority of your life. Not God. He's just a really, 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 really well-respected consultant in your life. But he is not the ultimate authority. So the question that you have to ask is, what happens when I and God disagree? And I can share with you, there are many times in my life where I read scripture and I go, God, I don't know about that. And like I shared with you already, I agree with myself a lot. But I come to the text and I wrestle and I struggle and I seek to discern, God, what are you saying about who you are and who we are in your image and in your likeness? What can we learn from you? So that's the first question. How do Christians determine what is true? Now, now here's the second question I want us to look at. What are the leading ideas that influence our cultural thinking, our cultural psyche today? Uh, what's the main worldview through which Canadians reason and identify how to live. And um, I'm going to lean pretty heavily on a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. If you like to read, read it. It's only 409 pages. So if you like that, go for it. But I'm going to try and give you a Coles Notes version really, really quickly here. And there's two things that he identified that I found super helpful. The first one is trying to understand who or what has the authority in our culture today. And so 
he gave a bit of a historical analysis. Here's what he did. So from before Christ to about 300 AD, he said politics was the ultimate authority. And, and the way for us to think about that, remember when we were in our Daniel series? And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he came into Judah and he overthrew them. What did he do to the king? Gouged out his eyes, ripped them from limb to limb, cut off their heads, killed their families, and a new regime came in, right? Same thing happened with the Medes and Persians when they took over the Babylonians. Same thing with the Greeks when they took over the Medes and the Persians. Same thing with the Romans when they took over the Greeks. Politics had the power. And every single time a new political structure came in, the culture changed. Overnight, the culture changed. And you even think about who were the, the leading thought influencers of the day, people that we still even know to this day. Plato, Aristotle, they were politicians. So very clearly during that time, politics was the authority. Then from the 300s to 1400, it was religion. And I'm not talking about Christianity, I'm talking about institutional religion. The amalgamation of church and state. So what the church said, what religion said, is what you needed to adhere, what you needed to follow and obey. And then roughly in the, the 15th century, we had science. And that stayed as the ultimate authority, even in Canada and US and in the West, all the way through the end of the 20th century. You think about um, the, the scientific revolution in the 17th century. You think about um, Galileo when he's looking up at the stars. And he says, you know what? I know that we interpret scripture when it says the earth is a firm foundation. It shall not be moved. We think that the earth is not moving anywhere. But I'm, I'm pretty sure the earth revolves around the sun. And what did the church say? You are a heretic. And they kicked him out. And then we found out later, oh, that has more to do with the sovereignty of God, kind of like the children's nursery rhyme. Uh, he's got the whole world in his hands. Not that it's literally fixed. Or what are the arguments that uh, we've been having in the last 30, 40 years in the church? It's all about creation. Is it a literal seven days? Is it 6,000 years old, 10,000 years old? Is it a million or a billion years old? You know, what about these homo sapiens? Are they evolved creatures that we now call humans? And as Christians, we're trying to understand what science is saying and what scripture is saying, but science was the authority. So here's the question I wanna ask you today. What is the ultimate authority in our lives in Canada right now in the 21st century? I would like to propose to you this, the individual. The individual, or human psychology. That is the ultimate authority. How we think, what we feel, and what is true for me. That defines what is true. And the idea that, that I determine what is true for me and you can determine what is true for you is a very, very powerful idea in the cultural psyche today. Think of the slogans that we use a lot. Um, coexist, love is love, pursue your truth. Very powerful ideas in our culture today. So it's too simplistic to say someone who has a different sexual ethic than you, you know, is anti-religion. That, that's not what it is at all. It's that we have a, a cultural worldview in the world today, especially in the U.S. and Canada, that says psychology is the ultimate leading authority. So let me give you a, a really practical example. 
If someone is a, a biological male, anatomical male with XY chromosomes, but they feel that they are a woman in a man's body, what is the ultimate authority today? Is it biology? Is it politics? Is it science? Is it religion? Or is it the self-actualized person? You know the answer to that question. And so again, we have to be really discerning in the way that we think about all these topics and not to throw people away and say like, what a terrible ideology, what, what awful views you have, because we're trying to interpret the world and to understand it better. That's what all of us are trying to do. Here's the second way that Carl Truman helped me understand what's happening in the world uh, by talking about four dead influencers that impact today's thinking. Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, and Sigmund Freud. So let's start off uh, talking about Nietzsche. He believed in this. He believed God was implausible and unnecessary. He believed that we should reject Christian morals. He said that we shouldn't use the term law of nature because, again, that implies that there's a lawgiver, and he didn't believe that there's a divine creator or architect. And he also believed that religion hinders us from being fully human. So a way to encapsulate the message of Nietzsche is saying this, you should live for the present. Live for the present. And again, I want to keep reminding you of this. It was the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 15, we're actually looking at this next week for Resurrection Sunday. He said, if Christ was not raised, then eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're all going to die anyway. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then Nietzsche sounds really, really good. And so if we're thinking like Christians, we're saying, why would a non-Christian think like a Christian when they don't believe in Jesus? And I'm telling you, if I wasn't a follower of Jesus, I'd be all in for Nietzsche. Live for the present. YOLO, you only live once. Enjoy your life. That makes perfect, coherent sense if you don't have a Christian worldview. Here's the second one, Karl Marx. He said, history is a story of oppression. He said everyone is either an oppressor or oppressed. He said that communism, not Christianity, also not capitalism, will bring peace on earth. And we need to be free from the oppression of Christianity. And so a way of encapsulating his message went a little bit like this. Be free from religion's oppression and morals. If we can break free from that, we can have liberty once again. We can be alive. Life will get better if we free ourselves from this. And if we had more time, I would love to talk to you about how I think um, the church was too hasty in their response to Marx. Because one of the things that the church did in response to Marxism is we doubled down on moralism. And we said, like, the only way for you to follow Jesus is you got to observe all of his righteous rules. And what did we do? We became just like the Pharisees. Rather than introducing non-Christians to Jesus, we tried to say, if you act like Jesus, if you comply with all of his rituals and laws, then he will accept you. But that's not the gospel, friends. That's not the gospel. That's religion. It's Pharisaic. It's Pharisaic. And so that's what Karl Marx said. Third is Charles Darwin. Uh, he's probably the most famous of the four here. And he said, the world doesn't need and didn't have a designer or divine architect. He said, we're here by chance through natural selection. There is no God and that we create our own 
meaning, and perhaps that last one is the best way to encapsulate his view, we create our own meaning. We create our own meaning. Darwin's thoughts are incredibly powerful in our culture today. I think he's probably the leading authority of the four um, in the way that we think as Canadians and as Americans, though we don't live out the implications of Darwinianism. Let me give you an example of this. I've shared this with you before. There is uh, no high school kid who ever went up to his high school sweetheart and said, roses are red, violets are blue, the earth doesn't matter and neither do you. I really like you. Will you go out with me? Like we, we don't act that way, right? So with respect to our religious freedoms, we say I'm Darwinian all the way. Truth is relative. I get to find what is true and what is right. But then with respect to relationships and love, we say truth is not relative. It has meaning. Everything has meaning, all those kinds of things. So we're, we're not Darwinian. Even the most ardent Darwinian would not say they're Darwinian. I found this this past week, I just, I, I laughed at it. In case no one told you today, life is decay, you'll always be alone, you're expendable, nothing happens for a reason, you're gonna die, you'll be forgotten, it'll be like you never existed. But we don't, we don't live that way, do we? We wanna say, life has meaning, but I get to determine what is true. Truth is fixed, but it's also relative if it disagrees with me. So we want to have our cake and eat it too. But Darwin has a really, really powerful impact on our life. The fourth and final one is Sigmund Freud. He believed life is all about finding sexual satisfaction. One's sexual appetite lies at the very center of who they are. So we're talking about identities now. Before Freud, sex was an activity that humans engaged in for procreation, for recreation. But now, after Freud, sex is viewed as definitive of who you are. So a way to encapsulate the message of Freud is our core identity is sexual. Before Freud, it was something you did. Now it's definitive of who you are. And listen, this is another reason why I want to convince you that we need to be incredibly compassionate people, filled with love and filled with grace. Because as I've asked you already, have you ever done the wrong thing for the right reasons? Many of our hands went up and said, yeah, I've done that before. And so if you're having a conversation with someone and you view sexual identity stuff, if you view um, a human sexuality in the main as definitive of what someone does, but the person on the other end of the aisle is saying it's definitive of who I am, then to reject that feels like you are rejecting them and causing harm to them. Now, you might disagree with their worldview. You might disagree with their perspective, but they are still worthy of your dignity, of your love, and your respect. And at the end of the day, we, we never want to be false to the truth. We never want to leave a lasting impression that I don't care about you, I don't love you, I think your ideas are stupid or foolish. We never want to have that sort of posture. Even if we, we say something like, you know what, with respect to all of these things, I just see things differently. So here's what it might sound like. Let's pretend we're at Starbucks again. And we're having a conversation with someone who has this sort of view. Then you get the opportunity to say, you know what, 
I believe, and scripture tells me, that we are all eternal beings. So when I hear live for the present, let me tell you something. I believe that we will spend all of eternity with Jesus. And so I say, live for eternity. Life is short, eternity is long. I wanna live that way. And with respect to wanting to be free from religions, oppression, and morals, I got good news. Jesus says exactly the same thing. He says, rules won't save you. Rules won't fix you. But when you come into a relationship with Jesus and you realize that everything he does wants to change your life from the inside out, now I want to follow his righteous ways, but not so that I can get on the inside, but because I believe it leads to light and life. And with respect to creating our own meaning, oh my goodness, my heart is treacherous. You should, you should just, I, I can't tell you this, but in my head, it is filled with sickness. And I hate my neighbor, and I hate God many days, and I am such a narcissist, but God is the one who changes my identity. God changes me from the inside out, and meaning is found in the word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And with respect to our core identity being sexual, I would say, I, I recognize that in our world today, we wrap up our identities in all sorts of stuff. Not just sex, but in politics, in our money, in how well-liked we are by people, our sexuality. But we would reject all those things and we would say that our core identity is rooted in Jesus. In Jesus. And so I, I don't want you to just think we're rejecting these things without also showing you why we do it. Because we think there's something better. Something more beautiful that will lead to life. And I just want to convince you, friends, that that's the way that we need to have these sorts of conversations. And even if you disagree with someone, you will be convinced, even if you're convinced that they're caught up in hollow and deceptive philosophies, like I shared with you last week, will you not be convinced to love them more? To walk with them more? To invite them into your home more? To go to their house more, not less? Because your heart is filled with compassion for those who are lost. So back to those two questions. How do Christians determine what is true? And also, what are the leading ideas that influence our culture today? We need to realize that the cultural worldview around us has changed. And these four dead influencers have a far greater impact on the cultural psyche than Christianity. The culture war is lost. And now we're, we're kind of like the Vancouver Canucks. We're in a rebuild. We're in a rebuild. God's going to do great things in our midst if we are faithful to suffer well and to lean in and to love our neighbor as ourself. So the best example I can give you when it comes to um, not being caught up in hollow and deceptive philosophies and focusing on the real thing is with respect to currency. So we got a picture of this up on the screen. Uh, here's a, a 2011 Canadian currency. So CSIS, every single time they're trying to find or identify counterfeit currency, here's what you got to know. They don't study counterfeit currency. What do they do? Instead, they, have, they want to the best of their ability to know the real thing. 
So here's, here's real currency. You can see here that there's a metallic building. That's right here. When you touch it, it feels different. You can uh, see right here that there's certain words that are raised, kind of like Braille, and uh, those who are studying currency, they, they know that. And there's a frosted leaf around here. All these things are really, really, really difficult to replicate. But here's what I want you to see. Here's the whole point of this. The best way to detect a counterfeit isn't by studying the counterfeit. The best way to know a counterfeit is to study and know the real thing, to be devoted to Scripture. To Scripture. The way not to fall captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy is not by taking all of our time talking about hollow and deceptive philosophies. And just an encouragement to you who are parents, the best thing that you can do for your kids is to help them develop their worldview. I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about the, the way our culture is changing or that you should reg regulate what they watch or listen to or read. Man, you have to be discerning. Like that, That's on you to figure out. But my encouragement to you as your pastor, spend far more time cultivating the worldview of your children. Ask good questions. Say, what happened in that movie? What was the villain doing? Why was he doing that? What happened in that book? How does that impact the way that we think as Christians? What's different about their behavior than our behavior? What motivated them to do that? Ask questions that cultivate their worldview so that they can see truth for what it truly is. It's the best thing, the best thing that you can do as godly parents. So next week, we're gonna jump into the deep end we're going to talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the week after that, we're going to get into all the topics. But once again, for the final time, I want you to see how we're going to do that. And we're going to cling to Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Here's the way that we're going to do it. We're going to continue to live our lives rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we were taught. And we are going to clothe ourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience for the glory of God and the good of those who love him. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Human Sexuality series, finding biblical answers to questions about sex and marriage, orientation, singleness, and more. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.